For the last four chapters, we have been analyzing the symbol of the fish and its relevance to religious tradition. In this chapter, we will take our knowledge of the fish symbol and apply it to a medieval tradition, one that Carl Jung was particularly interested in because he felt that it validated his theories regarding the human psyche. That tradition was alchemy. For the sake of time and clarity, I will provide a basic definition of what alchemy is so we can move on to Jung's analysis. In medieval times, before the advent of scientific chemistry and medicine, the alchemist sought to transmute lesser elements into greater elements, such as lead into gold. The primary goal of the alchemist was to discover the philosopher's stone, a supposedly perfect substance that could turn all base metals into gold and give its wielder eternal life. Clearly, alchemy wasn't like science in the sense that it was grounded in a purely objective, materialist worldview. It had many spiritual, supernatural aspects. These aspects, in Jung's mind, were projected by the unconscious psyche onto the alchemical Recipes. After all, where else could one get the idea that a rock could give somebody eternal life? Now, in respect to the fish as a symbol, where various religions have projected divine significance onto fish, the alchemist did the same. Jung starts this chapter by citing an alchemical text called the Turba Philosophorum, written circa 900 AD. This text is our earliest source for the alchemical fish symbolism. I am about to read you the fish recipe this book contains, but before I do, I want all of you to guess what fish is being talked about. Quote, There is in the sea a round fish, lacking bones and cortex, and having in itself a fatness, a wondrous virtue which if it is cooked on a slow fire until its fatness and moisture entirely disappear, is saturated with seawater until it begins to shine. This recipe is repeated in another alchemical text called the Enigmata Philosophorum. Both recipes share the same conclusion. Quote, when the Citrinitas Xanthosis yellowing appears, there is formed the Collyrium, eyewash, of the philosophers. If they wash their eyes with it, they will easily understand the secrets of the philosophy. Clearly, this recipe is cited because it is reminiscent of the Book of Tobit, which we discussed in the last two chapters. Both the book and the recipe prescribe applying the contents of a fish to one's eyes in order to provoke something miraculous. However, both stories differ in regards to the type of fish. The fish in the Book of Tobit clearly wasn't a round invertebrate. So, what fish is a round invertebrate? One potential answer to this question is the jellyfish. The jellyfish, like the fishes described in the past four chapters, has both positive and negative qualities projected onto it. To the alchemist, the jellyfish could be cooked in order to obtain curative qualities. However, in its natural environment, it is obviously quite dangerous. Pliny the Elder, an ancient Roman alchemist, wrote about the jellyfish, which he described as the Stella Marina, the Star of the Sea. Quote, this fish was said to be hot and burning, and to consume as with fire everything it touched 
in the sea. This could only be in reference to the painful fire of a jellyfish sting. Nicolas Cossin, a French Jesuit born in the 16th century, wrote about the same fish. He described it as a starfish, but not because of its shape. Rather, because like a star, the jellyfish generated so much heat that it not only sets fire to everything it touches, but it also cooks its own food. We now have positive and negative descriptions of the jellyfish echoing the ambivalent nature of fish described in the last chapter. What separates those fish from the jellyfish, however, is that the jellyfish was seen as a perfect union of these opposite elements, rather than a mere bearer of multiple descriptions. Young references another commentary on the jellyfish by an alchemist named Piscinalus, who describes the fire of the jellyfish as the fire of the Holy Ghost. The miraculous fact that the fire of the Stella Marina does not go out in the water reminds him of the Divine Gratia Efficacitas, action of divine grace, which sets on fire the hearts that are drowned in a sea of sins. In other words, the jellyfish is the perfect union of the opposites of fire and water. Just like the Jungian self, the god image, is a perfect union of opposites, so too is the jellyfish. It is this quality that gives the jellyfish such divine significance to the alchemist. The fire of the jellyfish is fire and water at once. The philosophers name it the living fire in honor of God, who mingles himself with himself. In the living water. The union of opposites in the jellyfish does not stop with fire and water, but also in regards to love. Love, like the god image and the jellyfish, has its positive and negative elements. The aforementioned Nicolas Cossin said that the fire of the jellyfish, which resides in the water, signifies the inextinguishable power of true love, just like the fire of the Holy Ghost represents true love. Pisanella says that this starfish is the hieroglyph of a lover's heart, whose passion not even the entire sea can extinguish. As romantic as this is, we still have to acknowledge, just like Pisanellis does, that love can take on both a divine and profane quality, and so too can the jellyfish with its symbolism of love. Pisanellis goes on to quote Saint Basil, who some of you might remember from chapter 5 when we discussed the Privatio Boni doctrine. Quote, then conceive in your mind a deep pit, impenetrable darkness, fire that has no brightness, having all fire's power of burning but without any light. Such a conception describes the fire of hell. I'm sure that anybody who has ever felt true love in their lives will know that it will bring you infinite joy, but it will also bring you infinite pain. That is what love is. One cannot feel the infinite joy without having the infinite pain to give it dimension. Just as Jung has stated from the beginning, the reason why the jellyfish has these qualities is the same reason why the constellation of Pisces was symbolized by fish. Our unconscious processes motivated us to project these qualities onto these various things. Just like our religious ancestors have projected the god image onto fish, the alchemist projected the libido onto the jellyfish. To use Edward Edinger's words from the Ion Lectures, the libido is simultaneously sacred, divine fire, divine love, and at the same time, purgatorial hellfire. On the one hand, 
Libido energy manifests as primitive desirousness that consumes when it manifests in its primeval intensity, unconsciously. On the other hand, in its conscious differentiated form, it manifests as transpersonal love, the highest function of the human psyche. Unfortunately, I had to split this chapter into two videos because there's just too much information to go over. Before we conclude this video, I want to cite one last part of this chapter. On page 134, Jung details a dream he had at the age of 20. He doesn't say that this dream was his in this book, but it is confirmed in his autobiography, Memories, Dreams, Reflections. Quote, he dreamt that he was walking in a wood. Gradually, this grew more and more lonely and wild, and finally he realized that he was in a primeval forest. The trees were so high and the foliage so thick that it was almost dark on the ground. All trace of a path had long since disappeared, but driven on by a vague sense of expectation and curiosity, he pressed forward and soon came to a circular pool, measuring 10 to 12 feet across. It was a spring, and the crystal clear water looked almost black in the dark shadows of the trees. In the middle of the pool, there floated a pearly organism about 18 inches in diameter that emitted a faint light. It was a jellyfish. Jung said that upon waking from this dream, he decided there and then to study science, and he kept to this decision. When interpreting this dream, Jung said that the round pool with the jellyfish in it represents a three-dimensional mandala, the self, wholeness as the goal to which the archetic appetite points, the magnetic north which gives the traveler his bearings on the sea of the world. First of all, Jung's evoking of the mandala is important for two reasons. As we have discussed in previous chapters, and as Jung points out here, the mandala is a symbol of the Jungian self, of wholeness. The pool itself is a mandala. That is the obvious part. What is not so obvious is that there is a second mandala staring us right in the face. As Edinger points out, if you look at the head of a jellyfish, what does one see? The jellyfish head is a living mandala. No wonder the alchemists were unconsciously driven to give the jellyfish such divine significance. Second of all, Jung describes the jellyfish as the magnetic north which gives the traveler his bearings. Why would he say that? Well, if one looks at the underside of the jellyfish head, one sees this, a cross, like one would see on a compass. However, this is not where the symbolism ends. Jung draws a connection between the infernal fire of the jellyfish and the attraction of steel to magnets. In an alchemical text titled Introitus Apertus, steel is described as having a hidden center, an archetic appetite to use Jung's previous words. It's the part of the steel that is drawn to the magnet. The magnet is the pole, which is symbolized by God. Just like the ego is guided by the self, and Jung was guided by the jellyfish as a sort of organic pole star, the steel is drawn to the infernal fire of the pole, which, as we pointed out in both chapters 7 and 9, is where God resides, the north. Once one has discovered their pole star, be it an actual star, the magnetic north, or the self, one can become oriented. One will know where they are and where they need to go, and it will all be done by the guidance of the infernal fire that resides in the pole, 
in the jellyfish, in God.